So Genesis 12, and I'll begin at verse 1 again. It says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house into a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan. And into the land of Canaan they came. And I'll stop there and we'll pray one more time. Father, as we again look at this passage um, and looking at Abram and his life and the promises that you gave to him, Lord, we just ask that uh, you would speak to us. I don't know what you have for each person here this morning, um, but Lord, we just ask that you would speak to each heart that's here um, that we would grow in our knowledge and our love of you even through our time together. And so we ask for your blessing and your help this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the same passage. I talked about hearing, listening to God's voice. And last week, I used the Bible camp and the directors and then all of this crowd that followed them, much like Lot followed Abraham. And took a part in the blessing and how we can apply that in our lives. And, and so this week, I want to look more specifically at the, the promise that is contained in here. Uh, verse 2 says, And I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So that's the, the portion that I'm going to focus on this morning, is this, this promise that is made to Abraham. Um, before I really get into that, I've been just, I, just, I was looking, um, I, don't, I know John Sabolta has the same thing, but most of you probably haven't seen it. There's this time chart of the Bible, and it's this book, great big thing, that flips open, and you can want, you can follow through the like the, the time spans of the various people's lives, and so I was looking at that, trying to place a little bit of this, and I just wanted to maybe just back up a little bit so that we can see the lives of the various characters that we've been looking at even up till now, and how they overlap, and get a better picture in our head. Like sometimes we separate these things so much that we don't put them together. But when you start to see that overlapping lifespan, it's like, wow. Like the people that these people could have known and the stories that they could have been told firsthand. And so if I just... It's difficult. I don't know if it's difficult for you. It's difficult for my brain to think backwards when we're talking about years BC, um, 
And that's before Christ, not anything else. Um, but trying to get my head around what, what is closer to us or, or further away and the distance between them, this backwards time numbering thing is, is just difficult for my head. But I'm just looking at it. Noah died. And take my numbers with a grain of salt. The, the guy that made the time chart is, is well-respected. He was Catholic, we'll forgive him. Um, but, you know, whether it's absolutely accurate, probably not. But, but he did his best, and it's a well-respected timeline. Um, so, so I'll give you the numbers that are here. and It's within proximity, okay? So Noah dies in 1998 B.C., Two years before Abraham was born. Noah died only two years before Abraham was born. Terah, that's the way you say it, Abraham's father, was 130 years old when Abraham was born. And uh, I'll just note that to get that number, you're not going to see that number in the Bible, that's 130 years when you're looking at the genealogies just prior to this, you'll see that he was 70 years old and he begat and he names the three sons. But when Abraham, or when Terah dies, it tells how old he was and how old Abraham was. And so you can do the math backwards and figure out how old he was when Abraham was born. So that, I didn't do the math, I just assumed the guy was right. <laughs> um, so he's 130 years old when Abraham's born, which means that Abraham's father was alive for 128 years during the life of Noah. Now, that seems kind of significant to me, but I'm not sure the details of where you get the numbers for Shem. But it says Shem lived for 502 years after the flood. That's a long time. And if that's true, he, Shem, Noah's son, lived during Abraham's life for 150 years. <laughs> and during Isaac's life for 50 years. Shem, according to this, would have died 10 years before Jacob was born. Now, that's kind of significant, isn't it? Because Shem is one of the three sons of Noah that got on the ark and went through that flood. And their relatives, this is a genealogy, is passed down, which means that Abraham may have had direct conversations with Shem, who went through the flood on the ark. It's like... When you start to put this stuff together, it's like, that's significant. And the lifespan that goes on here and then the overlapping and the stories that could get passed down, can you imagine? You know, great-grandpa. <laughs> you know, the stories that would go down in your family of the, the adventures that we had and the things that God did. Although we get on... And we see, like, when, when Moses is coming out of Egypt, 
And the things that God did, and we're not even passing another generation, it's like the same people a month later are completely going sideways, even after seeing the mighty works of God. So not that that necessarily has a huge impact, but it, it's really interesting to start to, to see some of these overlapping time frames. Um, in addition to that, Jacob's family, just to get some, some more picture of, of time frames here, Jacob's family goes into Egypt in, again, take my numbers with a grain of salt here, uh, in 1706 BC, well, 115 years after Abraham dies. So they go into captivity just over 100 years after Abraham dies. When we get into Genesis chapter 15, specifically, if, if you wanted to, oh, we're, we're, we're real close, so just flip the page over. Genesis 15, verse 13, says, And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them 400 years. Now, God's promising in what we're reading that I'm going to put you in a land that I'm going to give to you and your inheritance for your family, and I'm going to make you a great nation. So don't forget that. But now he says, you're going to go into a land that is not yours, and you're going to serve, and you're going to be afflicted for 400 years. Now, if you want to look at the answer to that, Exodus chapter 12 Exodus chapter 12, verse 40, tells us, says, Now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. God told Abraham before all this happened that you're going to be in this land and you're going to be afflicted for 400 years. And here it says, they were sojourning in this land for 430 years. Now, is this a... So, for one, this is a pretty good fulfillment of the promise, right? But is there an error by the, the difference of 30 years? Well, I wouldn't think so, because it says they sojourned, not that they were afflicted for the 430 years. Looks like there might have been about a 30-year span where they weren't afflicted, they were just guests. And we can see that part during Joseph's life, right? So... Um, it's just interesting. Now, what's the point of all this? We'll get to this. Go back to Genesis 12. It says, I will bless. Sorry, verse 2 says, I will make of thee a great nation. Remember Abraham's 75 years old at this point, And he has no kids. And God promises, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And I'm assuming most of you know how the story goes, but they go on a number of years and still no kids. But it says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. 
his faith. And I was like, we go into the New Testament and all over the place in the New Testament, we give this reference back to Abraham that he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Like that was, that's the example to us in that if we just believe God, believe the gospel, that that's what's counted to us for righteousness, not our actual things that we do. And it's our faith in what Christ did for us that gives us our salvation. And this is exactly the picture with Abraham. It's that he believed God. Despite the fact that he's an old man and his wife is an old lady, and they ain't had no kids yet. And they carry on and still have no kids. And so eventually she says, well, take, take my servant, Hagar, and she'll have a baby for us. And they do that, but God says, no, that's not the one. That's not my promise. I said, you're going to have a baby. You and Sarah are going to have a baby. And in that story, it's very interesting. I, I, I'm not going to look at it this morning, but it's interesting to see in one spot it says Abraham laughed. <laughs> and another spot it says that Sarah laughed. And when Sarah laughed, Sarah laughed as, in, as if that could ever happen to me. And it was a laugh of a mockery of not believing God. And God criticized her. God called her out for that one. And she did, in fact, have that baby in her old age. I believe 99 years old or something like that. But when Abraham laughed, God didn't criticize him the same way. It's like, because Abraham, despite the, the laugh, it's like, how... How could I possibly have a kid, right? But he laughed, and but he still believed God. Um, but remember the promise. I'm going to make of thee a great nation. <laughs> this old man who doesn't even have a kid, and now he, he manages to have one kid in their old age. His kid doesn't even have much for kids. <laughs> you get to Isaac, you get Jacob and Esau. And so, this promise of God, God says some things, and we're holding on to so many promises. And I, we pray, searching for answers, looking like for that second coming of Christ, right? He promised he was coming back. And we see a bunch of signs of that coming. And we're looking for that day. And we're thinking it's got to be yesterday. Like, how, how could he wait any longer? And yet, we see, when it comes to God and his promises, it never works on our timelines. Like, this fulfillment of this, I'm going to make thee a great nation. Abraham never saw that day. <laughs> he has two kids that fight. Don't get along. Um, but what we just looked at is that 400 years later, so maybe 500 years here, because they said it was 115 years before they went into captivity, and they're in captivity for some 400 years. So we got about a 500-year span from the time of this promise until they come out of Egypt. Do you know how many people went into Egypt, you get into, um, 75. I think it was 
Genesis 46, 26 says 66. Jake, um, there were 66 souls went with Jacob into Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 12, I don't know if you're anywhere near there, but Exodus chapter 12, verse 3, I'll just read it because I, I happen to be there. It says, Speak ye into, unto the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb according to the... And, uh, that's not the right verse. <laughs> All right, I won't read it, but you'll have to take my word for it. Somewhere near here. It talks about how many people came out of Egypt. There was 600,000 men. Men. And it specifically says, plus children. Um, and then it also says a mixed congregation. And if I'm not mistaken, 600,000 men doesn't include the women. So people have estimated there was probably 2 million people came out of Egypt. There's certainly more than 600,000. And, you know, they didn't have just a couple of kids back then. It wasn't two for, per family, right? Like, we have a lot of Mitchells and Turgeon families back then that it's like you got your 10 and... 10 or 12 kids going on. <laughs> That's a lot of kids. So you add the number of people to 600,000 and you put a half a dozen kids in each family, you could easily get 2 million. You could get 3 or 4 million. No problem at all. Was God's promise fulfilled? Absolutely. You compare the 66 that went in to the several million likely that came back out in just a 400-year span. That's not... Abraham never saw that. But God certainly fulfilled his promise to Abraham. God keeps his promises. He became a great nation. And, you know, we can continue looking at the history that of... Of nations in history, Israel is one of the only, not the only, but one of the very few that existed some almost 2,000 years BC and now 2,000 years AD still exists or exists again. <laughs> it's, it's incredible that that nation has continued for this much time. Um, when we continue looking at this promise, Genesis 12, verse 3 says, I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. Now, I would, I didn't get a, I wasn't able to find some of the information that I would like to have found to share about this. But if you look, even in the modern history since 1948 of Israel as a nation, and you look at their allies and their enemies, and what has happened among the nations that are their allies, and what has happened to the nations that have been their enemies you can see the fulfillment of this verse still playing out today. That those who bless Israel 
receive a blessing. And those that curse Israel receive cursing, are cursed by God. Um, I would hazard to say that America's support of Israel is probably the only reason that Israel, or that America exists as a nation today. If you look at everything else that goes on there, it's shocking that God has not destroyed that place. And yet, they support Israel and seem to be blessed. So, I suspect that there's a connection between these things. There's a promise to Abraham. Right at the beginning, I'm going to bless those that bless you, I'm going to curse those that curse you. And God keeps his promises and has continued to do that. I just want to look at, there's this verse, um, Zechariah, so right near the end of the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 2. last book, so if you're struggling there. Zechariah chapter 2 and verse 8 says, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, after the glory that he, sorry, after the glory hath he sent me unto the nations which spoiled you, for he that toucheth you Toucheth the apple of his eye. Now, there was some events going on, obviously, where God was going to deal with those that persecuted Israel. Uh, but that statement at the end of the verse, for he that toucheth you, as he's talking to the nation of Israel, to Abraham's descendants, the nation that came out of Abraham. He that touches you touches the apple of his eye, of God's eye. What a statement of love and care for those people. We have such a mixed up world of so-called Christians who think that God is done with the nation of Israel, that our, the church has taken the place of Israel somehow and that God's no longer, these promises no longer apply to, to Abraham's actual descendants, but just to those that believe in Christ. But that's not consistent with Scripture at all. If you want to look at um, uh, Romans chapter 11, actually, if you're going to Romans 11, maybe before we read that, also go to, to Revelation. Revelation 21. So Romans, Romans 11, but and first we'll go to Revelation 21. Verse 12 in Revelation 21 says, it's describing this city in the new heaven. This, this city that came down from God onto the the, the new earth, sorry. Um, 
verse 12 says, And had a, a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. In eternity, in heaven, there is a permanent reminder of the names of the twelve sons of Jacob, which are the twelve tribes of Israel, that nation that was the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham was a permanent promise. He is going to bless that nation. And so there is no replacing of that. We get the actual 12 12 tribes named on these 12 gates in the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven in that eternal, permanent, sinless home. And so we can see that fulfillment carries on. But look at, um, if we go to Romans 11, we'll see something here. I'll start at the beginning. I'm going to read a little bit of this chapter to, to get some context with it. It says, I say then, hath God cast away his people? And that's the question that we asked. Is, has God cast away his people? Is God done with the nation of Israel? The answer is God forbid. For I am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. What ye not what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars and I am left alone and they seek my life. Do you ever feel like that? Like this is, Elijah is praying to God. It's like, I'm the only one left that, that serves you. And God's like, no, you're not. <laughs> I got a whole pile of guys over here tucked away safe and sound serving me. You're not the only one left. We're not the only ones left. There are more than, than just the few that we often see. But, if we carry on, verse 4 says, But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then, at this present time, as in that was just a picture for you to learn who I am and what I'm like and what the future is going to hold. So so then at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. It's kind of a different topic here. But verse 7 says, What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for. But the election hath obtained it, and the the rest were blinded. And the point is, is the nation of Israel as a whole, and this is what the discussion here is about, that the nation of Israel as a whole rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah. 
you want to verify that, go, go read the book of Acts and see the treatment of some of the followers of Christ. Like they were stoned to death. Stephen was stoned uh, by the religious leaders of the nation. Um, they, as a whole, rejected Christ. But, and God turned from the nation of Israel to the Gentiles with the gospel message. And that's, kind of, that's what the discussion here is about, is that he's now made available the gospel, salvation to Gentiles. Does that mean he's done with Israel? It's like, no. Don't, don't get that idea in your head. Obviously, that's been an issue right from the beginning here, because we're writing about it. God's not done with Israel. Verse 1, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. God hasn't done that. They rejected him, but he hasn't, he's not done yet. We did our study in Revelation, and we see that there is a remnant in Israel. Even as God judges that nation through the tribulation period, there is a remnant saved, alive, that will serve the Lord. It will carry on. And the blessings and the promises made to Abraham, way back here, will carry on and be fulfilled in eternity. Um, go to verse 11 in the same... We can skip down here. It says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Speaking of the nation of Israel again. It says, God forbid. But rather... Through their fall, salvation is come to the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. And that's exactly what I said, is that salvation, God opened up salvation to the Gentiles, to, to the rest of the world, made of salvation available, made Christ's sacrifice available to the rest of the world, which is a fulfillment of the rest of that verse, verse 3 in Genesis 12, I don't know if you're still there, I'm not, but it says, in these shall all nations or all families of the world, earth, be blessed. All families will be blessed through the promise of God to Abraham. Which means that here's the fulfillment of that, is that Christ came and his death paid for everyone's sins, so that salvation is made available to all of us. Um, I've gone to these verses recently, but um, Titus 2.11, just to confirm what I'm saying from Scripture, says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. There's no... Limited crowd, it's not just of the nation of Israel, it's not just of a certain select few, it's made available as it has appeared. The, the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all men. Now, 1 John 2, if we carry on a little bit further here, 1 John 2, it says, starting in verse 1, says, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, 
Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, I don't know who ours only is specifically talking to. If it's just the recipients of this letter, But it doesn't matter who that limited crowd is. It's not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The whole world, every living person who has or ever will live, their sins were covered. Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient to satisfy God's demand for the sins of the whole world. Now, Does that mean everybody goes to heaven? (laughs) No, it doesn't. It means everyone's got the ability, has the opportunity. We were watching a a clip this morning of a... It was supposed to be comedy, Christian comedy thing. Um, But it was about... um, Hmm. I knew a second ago. My thoughts went down a different path here for a second. Um, forget it. <laughs> oh my. thinking of the error that was in it, but I, maybe it's better that I don't say it. How do you, the question is, is, what must I do to be saved? This is what it was. Was the, the answer, not now that question wasn't posed, but the, the answer was given that the only part in my salvation that I take is my sin. Now, that's a, that was a Jonathan Edwards quote, but that's a foolish statement because if, if that statement, if the only part of my salvation that I play is my sin, then the answer to the question of what must I do to be saved would be to sin. Sorry, that was, this is, that was where I was trying to get to. Is that the answer to that question, what must I do to be saved? Sin? No. No. My sin was paid for on the cross. So now what must I do to be saved? I must believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Every time we talk about salvation through the New Testament, it is by faith. It's by believing in that gospel. So not my only part in it isn't just in my sin. The part that I play is that I have to come to the conclusion that my own goodness isn't sufficient. And I have to now believe that Jesus was sufficient, that what he endured on the cross took my sin and paid the penalty for it. I I do have a role. It's not much of a role, but it's just believing that I'm bound for hell and that I need a savior and that he is it. That's my role. I have to believe that. 
and that is the demand of us. And, you know, I, I, I'll finish, I'll go to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 3. You know, verse 16, the whole world seems to know John 3, 16, to some extent, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, that's the answer to our question of what's my role is whosoever believeth in him. But we should never stop there when we're reading that. God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, let me just say that Christians have a bad reputation, and rightly so, because we have a tendency of condemning the world. And it says that Christ came not into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I think we present the message poorly, historically. (coughs) He that believeth on him, verse 18, says, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Jesus didn't need to come to condemn. We don't need to condemn the world. They're already condemned because they haven't believed in Christ. We, our job is to present the gospel, which is supposed to be good news. Good news isn't that you're going to hell. Good news is that Christ made a way that you don't have to. And that's our job, is to tell people of that good news, that the price has already been paid. There's nothing left for you to do but believe in that. Let's pray.